Dr. Michael Rowe is a reader in modern European history at King's College London, where he's been teaching since 2004, which is also the year when he was elected Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Over the last two decades, he has published extensively on the period of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. He's also delivered a brilliant series of podcast lectures on Napoleon for the Historical Association. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Azza. Before we dig into Napoleon's life and his deeds, and of course, Ridley Scott's polarizing movie, I'd like us to address one thing. Literally two seconds after I first contacted you via email last week, uh, the YouTube algorithm was immediately so kind as to serve me a debate between two Napoleon biographers, uh, I believe Adam Zamoyski and uh, Andrew Roberts, slugging it over the question whether Napoleon was great or not. Andrew Roberts said that Napoleon was not just a military genius, but that he was, I quote, enlightenment on horseback, while his opponent, um, Adam Zamoyski, said that he essentially ruined France's position in Europe and that the man was, I quote again, a prude who brought his small town morality into public life. So I thought it would be interesting to begin the episode by asking you which side of this historical judgment <laughs> you fall on. Yeah. Was Napoleon I mean, what... indeed great? Yeah, I mean, what's what's wrong with small town morality? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think he is great. And I, I think he's great because he's a, a primarily a, a great institution builder. OK, so um, I don't think he ruins France uh, in many ways. He he kind of produces the France that we know today. Um, with things like the civil code, with the administration, the whole kind of institutional edifice, okay, things which are not going to be necessarily celebrated in the film because who wants to see a film about bureaucrats kind of coming up with an administrative template? But yeah, that's that's a kind of legacy which Napoleon himself talks about when he's in exile. Um, he's a great general. You know, he wins more battles than he loses. He loses the war overall, but he's also... He's also the little man, okay, and I don't mean that in the physical sense. He's he's kind of maybe a little bit below average height, but he's the the person from a, a fairly humble background who kind of makes it more than makes it, um, reaches the top, and I think that's an example to a lot of people afterwards, okay, after eighteen fifteen, that um you can achieve where your talents and I guess fate takes you, and it 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 doesn't depend upon your birth, and I think that's kind of inspiring for a lot of um, a lot of people after 1815 and it's it's pretty new you begin your podcast lectures on napoleon's rise to power by explaining that after the french revolution of 1789 there was a sort of a vacuum i believe you say that there was a demand for such a figure as napoleon to appear does that mean that any sort of a strong man or a general taking over would have a similar trajectory and it was more about timing than mm. anything else? Or did Napoleon possess a set of unique qualities that enabled him to set his meteoric rise in motion? Yeah, I mean, um, 
I think France would have ended up with a Napoleon-like figure, okay? And there are several contenders in the 1790s. Um, young generals, young kind of people have made their career in the military. Uh, they're in their sort of like 20s, so way more junior than you'd expect a, a general to be. And you can look at these things in terms of supply and demand, okay? Kind of like economics. And um, there is a demand for a Napoleon kind of figure uh, in late 1790s France. And there's a kind of an oversupply. Um, and Napoleon kind of makes it. It's partly through luck. He himself believes in luck. Um, you know, he's a bit superstitious there. He's not He's not entirely a man of the Enlightenment. Um, he, he believes in luck, but he's also a great general. And there, there are other great generals, you know, they're good at tactics, they're good at operations and strategy and logistics and inspiring their troops to follow them. He's good at that. Uh, I think what he brings possibly uniquely to the mix, he's a great self-publicist. You know, he, he does his great actions, but then he also broadcasts about the great actions he's done. And he does some actions which aren't so great, you know, like Egypt, where he essentially kind of loses, but he manages to spin that into a into a kind of great achievement um so he surrounds himself with publicists and artists and, and so on um so he's very good at propaganda um and i think that 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 is maybe um that combination okay you're demanding a hero uh you need a talented general but you also need somebody that kind of convinces you that he's a great general napoleon kind of ticks those boxes how did he market himself i mean what exactly did that even mean at the end of the 18th century well you need to you know you need to make use of a printing press and okay the printing press is an old in invention it goes back much further than napoleon but it's becoming kind of cheaper to produce prints and um you know the population of france and indeed of, of europe more widely is becoming more literate and is more able to kind of afford pamphlets uh visual images um, he patronizes great art artists, uh, people like Antoine Gros, who produces these wonderful kind of paintings of, of Napoleon, which maybe only a few people see. But then you get kind of like cheap um, kind of copies, essentially, which are, which are produced. So all of that. And, um, you know, he's very good at kind of language as well. You know, he, he writes these kind of short, I, I guess you'd call them kind of pithy declarations, uh, proclamations to his troops um, and to to civilians. Um, so he's, he's very, he's a good communicator in that sense. He's not a great orator, I think, when it comes to actually speaking to people in, a, in an assembly. There he kind of falls down. Um, but he's, he's very good at kind of speaking to a wider audience through the use of what we would call the press. Did he have an accent when he was speaking French? Like a Corsican accent. He does have an accent, and uh, and his writing is kind of like full of, sort of spelling mistakes. Not that that sort of matters very much, because you know uh, when you're important, you can kind of dictate things to secretaries, and, and they 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 kind of tidy it up a little bit. Um, yeah, so I think his oratory skills are not brilliant, and that 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 actually leads to sort of problems that uh, you know one crucial moment when he does his coup d'état in 1799, and he kind of. Um, he appears before the assembly and tries to get them to basically vote themselves out of existence. And, and the oratory and, and all that is kind of completely, you know, awful. And uh, 
you know, basically has to call in the, the guards uh, to clear the assembly, or his brother does anyway. <laughs> you said that he was uh, making use of the printing press and newspapers. Mm. Was there a relative, um, how should I put it, freedom of press? Uh, how tolerant was he of criticism? Well, he's not tolerant of criticism, but, you know, he is he is entering into a, a, a very vibrant kind of print culture in, in Paris. You know, one of the things that the revolutionaries do do, at least initially, is to basically get rid of kind of censorship law. So you get a, a fairly free press and then it sort of tightens up at various points. Um, but, yeah, it, he can make use of that kind of talent pool of journalists and publicists and printers, which have sort of come of age. Uh, and again, it's a supply and demand. You know, these people need to sell. These, these are commercial kind of, um, you know, commercial outfits. Okay, they need to they need to sell news and they need to sell their kind of prints, and, and so they need a hero as well. They need um, they need a uh, and, and Napoleon is great there. You know, what were some of uh, some of his other undisputed talents? You mentioned that he was a, a great military strategist and that he was great at. Uh, marketing and being a propagandist. Did he have like a good memory or was he a charismatic person? Was it easy for him to attract followers? Yeah, I, I think it is. He does seem to have that. And charisma is such a, it's kind of one elusive of those very... Term. Yeah, it's right. elusive. You know what? You, you don't have a tick box of 10 things and then you're charismatic. Um, he does seem to have that. You know, it's one of those things which is hard to recreate because we haven't got any film of him or recordings or, or see how he moves or those kind of things um so it's it's really you get it i guess indirectly as a, a historian and see what other people write and i guess how they act and he does have this capacity to attract you know really talented people around him and that's interesting that that must count as one of those things where you say yeah he probably is kind of great because that, that must be a definition of, 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 of great leadership. Um, yeah, I mean, he remembers the names of the ordinary soldiers. Um, he will kind of make a point of, um, of greeting them, maybe tweaking their, their ear or their cheek in a kind of familiar kind of way on a parade and say, you know, I kind of remember you, how, how are you doing kind of thing. That, that sort of personal touch. Um, so he does that, but he also, and I find that interesting, manages to combine it with a degree of detachment. Okay, I'm, I, I do the familiar stuff, but I am nonetheless not you. I'm, I'm kind of separate. I'm this kind of <laughs> great figure. Um, so he's he's a bit of a stickler for things like kind of etiquette, and, protocol, um, protocol. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, he, he's not the kind of guy where he would really tolerate it. But you just go up to him and pat him on the back and say, you know, hi. Napoleon, how you're doing? You know, uh, he can do that to you, um, but he will. He, he starts to behave a little bit monarchical even before he, you know, kind of seizes power in uh, in, in France in 1799. And of course, as his regime then develops, he becomes ever more monarchical and and kind of a stickler for sort of formality and protocol. Do we have any anecdotes about what happens when people, um, you know, don't treat him the way he? expects to be treated uh, when they don't follow protocol um, how does he react to these situations i'm not sure if there are any examples of that uh maybe they just don't dare you know um i i assume they would be banished from court you know it's it's not it's not kind of like a, one of those regimes which you know would sort of simply kill somebody it's not like a a, a kind of 
the worst of tyrants that we're we're used to. But um, you know, he will make comments. Um, I mean, this comment you made about sort of prudishness at the beginning, this kind of uh, well, it's Adam Zamoyski you're quoting there. Yes. Um, you know, he does kind of make comments if if women at uh, you know at court uh, sort of maybe a bit underdressed or whatever, and are revealing a bit too much, he'll sort of make comment. You know, aren't you feeling the cold or something like that? Some kind of snide <laughs> remark to embarrass them. So he's he's a little bit kind of conservative on those kind of things. And he wants things to be kind of correct and ordered. Um, and he doesn't like, he doesn't like public embarrassment or scandal. So I think there's a, there's a degree of care which needs to go into things like protocol to prevent some embarrassing moments where then people can possibly mock you that he's not very good at taking, you know, he, 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 he won't sort of laugh at himself. Uh, and um, that's maybe not such a great quality of his. We talked about how difficult it is to discern if he was charismatic or not in person. What do people who are maybe not French and met him say about him, say about meeting him? Finding a, an objective source, of course, is, is difficult because people yeah. have a kind of like, you know, strong views on Napoleon one way or the other. And um, I mean, I, I suppose one of the people that does know him best is, is a, a very interesting figure from this period, somebody called Metternich, Clemens von Metternich, who's the Austrian um chancellor uh foreign minister basically in charge of austria from 1809 onwards uh, but he's also ambassador to paris in the years before that and he meets um he has a lot of meetings with napoleon and um probably the foreigner i guess who's probably had most interaction with with napoleon at a kind of professional level would be metternich and i think from what he writes, uh, you, you get the sense that Napoleon is, is quite good at manipulating his interlocutor. You know, he does this kind of passive aggressive type of thing. And you're not quite sure if he's really angry and having a tantrum or whether it's just a bit of a, a kind of a show to pressurize you. And then he will turn on the charm. Um, you know, there's sort of stories about him kind of throwing, taking off his hat and throwing it on the floor and kind of stamping on it. And, you know, he does these kind of things during negotiations but is it is it something which is just a show i he, he puts it on and off like an actor um so yeah i mean i, I think he can do charm i mean an, another interesting source is um uh, other uh, sort of correspondence of people like marie louise the second empress uh whom he marries in in 1810 and in there he comes across actually as a very kind of a, a positive person you know somebody who could be quite charming and you know have a degree of empathy for somebody who like him had been a foreigner essentially in uh in in an ex in in france and you know french elite society isn't always very accepting of foreigners indeed it probably isn't most of the time uh and um he kind of eases her into um in into that kind of life so i i think it's his personal characteristics are really very interesting. That um, they're really interesting because they're they kind of to an extent contradictory. All right, we got to go to Napoleon, the military man. If we look at the entire entirety of his military record, all the battles he ever participated in as a general, from spectacular wins such as Austerlitz to crushing defeats such as Waterloo, when all is said and done. Was Napoleon an undeniably brilliant commander or not really? Or was he a bit overhyped? 
Yeah, I mean, military people tend to sort of divide things up, okay, into into what they would call strategy. So that's the overall kind of geopolitical picture, what you're trying to achieve. What is the big idea? Uh, and there, I think Napoleon does kind of fall down. I mean, I think he's he's not a great strategist, um, and I think his strategy is uh, is essentially aimed at defeating Britain using um, you know kind of economic warfare, blockading the entire continent, which means in a sense kind of subjecting to your will a vast number of other European powers, and that just seems to be kind of utterly unrealistic. Um, but I think, you know, at a lower level, you've got what military people call about operations, you know, moving um, armies around, you know, on, on, a, on a battlefield and uh, over, a, over a, a slightly bigger territory. And I think there Napoleon's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, you reference Austerlitz and it's uh, uh, and there's a battle actually just before Austerlitz, Ulm, which in many ways is even more interesting because it's it's not a particularly bloody operation. Um, but he, he threw moving troops, moving units of the, the, the larger French army, uh, these subdivisions known as corps. He moves them all the way from the Channel Coast down into southern Germany. Um, and he, he uses speed. He plans, you know, which routes they're going to take. And he essentially encircles the Austrians before they know what's hit them. And uh, that's absolutely brilliant. And it's kind of studied, you know, the, the Napoleonic operational art. It's studied in military academies, you know, um, after the Napoleonic Wars as, as kind of this is this is near perfection. Some of it. This is this is what you need to try and aspire to as a as a military commander. All right. You analyzed one of his biggest victories. What if you tell us what, for example, which flaws does one of his defeats expose uh, of him as a military leader? Uh, Waterloo, yeah. for example. Is it I mean, what you, you said about him that he's not a great strategist? Yeah, I think that's that's part of a problem. I mean, when you say you no know, spectacular defeats, I mean he has spectacular victories like Austerlitz and Orm, but I don't think he has really spectacular defeats in the sense that mm. uh, you know even even battles like Waterloo, uh, you know, yeah. which he loses, are as, as Wellington says, you know, is, is a, a close run thing. Um, Napoleon isn't somehow uh, you know suddenly surrounded and uh, and then sort of like loses the battle within an hour or so without pretty much firing a shot so he doesn't he doesn't have those kind of catastrophes um yeah looking at waterloo um part of a problem is that he needs to you know win that battle fast um it rains it means you you can't attack the british uh, as soon as you want to um i i think There's also a problem that, you know, if you're good at anything, people will then start to sort of copy you. So a lot of his best victories are sort of earlier on. Austerlitz is fairly early on, I guess, 1805. But then if you look at his um, his battles after that, you, you find that the Allied powers start to up their game um, mm. and they become kind of harder opponents. You know, they start to develop what we call the core system, you know, the way you organize your army and subdivide it. Um, I think his enemies start to become actually better motivated, uh, especially the Prussians. You know, they just sort of basically just hate the, the French guts and, uh, you know, just sort of determined. And there's that kind of level of determination there on the other side and skill and also numbers, which make it harder for Napoleon. Um 
so yeah, the later Napoleon is 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 maybe less spectacularly successful than the earlier one, um, possibly with the exception of the the campaign in France in early eighteen fourteen. But you know, there he's fighting on home soil, and he's got what you know, military people call interior lines of communication. So it's easier for him to manoeuvre. Uh, and there he's, you know, he, he does have a, some of that kind of old flair, if you like, from, from his earlier years shows itself. But, you know, the, the Allies have got the numbers and he hasn't by then. One of the common criticisms that I read is that he had insufficient regard for the lives of his soldiers and that his battle tactics led to an extremely high number of casualties, that he was kind of reckless and sloppy with the lives of his men. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think I would. And this, this, um, there is this kind of very controversial meeting between Metternich and um, uh, Napoleon in 1813 in Dresden, when the Austrians are trying to mediate. And it's a very long meeting. And the only record we have is Metternich. But he, he kind of reports Napoleon as of having made sort of comments along the lines, he doesn't care about the lives of, you know, 100,000, or maybe a million, certainly 100,000 of his troops, it's kind of like nothing. So, Okay, maybe we have to be a little bit careful there because you can't always trust Metternich. But um, his actions speak to that, and uh, you, you get these kind of frontal assault kind of battles, like Wagram in eighteen o nine and Borodino, uh, and to an extent even Waterloo, which are kind of bloodbaths. Um, and uh, you know the French by this time have mastered um, a, a very efficient form of military conscription where you can raise very large numbers of troops and you have these sort of intakes of, of young men, you know, people around 20 um, every year, and you can just kind of replace your losses. Um, and one gets a sense that Napoleon can be a little bit lazy when it comes to worrying about casualties. Um, and, <laughs> That's you know, an you interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't have been able to have done that in the 18th century when you have these sort of small professional armies. You know, had, yeah. had you had you suffered losses of that scale, you wouldn't have had an army anymore and you, you kind of lost a war. So you, you have to be more careful. You have to husband your resources. That perhaps introduces a certain caution into 18th century warfare, um, which in the Napoleonic period, you don't really need to have. Um, and, you know, it's you can you can raise perhaps 100,000 troops, you know, annually with an annual intake. It, it's uh, and and so you get this kind of war machine. You know, I'd compare it a bit like to a tsunami. OK, a, a tsunami wave is not short. It's very long. You know, the water keeps on coming. It's it's deep. And this kind of conscription system that uh, Napoleon presides over just kind of like you, you just add more and more manpower to make up your losses. I, I think Napoleon probably overestimates what French society is capable of, and it, it does create a very bad mood in France, to say the least, by 1813, a, a degree of war weariness. And you, you start to get this um, narrative emerging that Napoleon's a kind of ogre uh, who imposes a blood tax upon French society and has... has uh, is no problem about you know killing people's sons um, for for no purpose. And he's callous, and I think that's a very damaging you know it's a damaging narrative. Metternich is probably not going to report on that, but did Napoleon ever show any sort of sorrow about the the vast numbers of of dead soldiers in his Grande Armée? I, I don't think on that kind of global level. I think he could really be quite sort of callous there. Um, 
So he doesn't admit, he's, he's not very good at admitting to kind of errors or defeats or that he you know, was responsible for uh, you know, vast numbers of deaths. Whether he did, you know, um, in his head, I guess we'll never know, but there's, there's no evidence for that. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think he could show empathy at a personal level. And I mentioned this about Marie-Louise and there, there are other examples, but I think when it comes to that kind of global you know, dealing with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of troops. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure he's sorry that he lost them, but, but that's because he hasn't got an army. But in 1813, he has to create a new one. So, I mean, it's geopolitically problematic if you lose, uh, you know, 600,000 troops in one go. But you don't get a kind of like a reflection or a sense that this is uh, this is a kind of like a great moral sort of problem, um, but it's something you should kind of reflect upon and maybe you know, change either your policy so that there aren't those losses or your your tactics. Uh, and you, you do get these kind of like frontal assault type of battles, which really are bloodbaths and pretty much unprecedented, you know, in terms of the, the number of losses, uh, you know, maybe where, where 30, 40 percent of people are casualties on, on, on one side or the other, uh, like Borodino. Waterloo is a bit like that as well. Um, uh, absolutely incredible battles. I don't know where I read this anecdote or if it's even true. I really can't remember right now, but I read somewhere a, a, a story about Napoleon after one of his battles, seeing a dead soldier and then a dog sitting behind his dead owner, who was the soldier. And then Napoleon uh, was kind of moved uh, by by the fact that this dead soldier didn't have any of his family or friends there to mourn him. He only had this dog, uh, his loyal dog there. And Napoleon kind of writes in one of his correspondence that, yeah, uh, I can't believe that I command thousands of people to their deaths. And I'm, I'm completely cold, but I am moved now at the sight of this dog uh, mourning his master. Is that a real story? I don't know, but it's, I, I think it is actually credible and it's plausible. But, mm. you know, I've, I've also seen stories where he sort of said, you know, um, to, to stretcher bearers, you know, that, that soldier's no good anymore, you know, tip him into the ditch, um, you've, uh, you know, <laughs> try and save somebody who can actually be saved, you know, so, um, so you get that kind of callousness as well. So I, I don't know what you do with those anecdotes, you know, do you add right. them up and sort of, are, are there more uh, humane anecdotes than, than, than not? And, uh, or, or is it somebody who depends on his mood? Uh, I mean, he's, I think he's he is capable of showing emotion, Napoleon, um, and and I guess we all have our mood swings, maybe, and uh, uh, you know, pity certain things, but then can be callous in other situations. Uh, that that is maybe the human condition. Makes sense. Once he was firmly in power, what was his aim? Is it possible to ever truly discern whether he believed that he is working for the welfare of French people? or just for his own glory? I suppose both can be true at the same time as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one gets a sense of Napoleon and his regime that there's a bit of a kind of a, a like a little bit of a hole, a, a vacuum where there should be an idea. Um, something you couldn't necessarily say about Lenin or Stalin, who've got a kind of like a, you know, Marxist ideology or... Right. Um, or the Third Reich, I guess, we've got this kind of racial ideology, you know, you, you, you know what the Nazi policy is basically what their what their objective is, but with the Napoleonic, um, the Napoleonic Empire seems to be a bit of a 
you know, a bit tricky. Um, there, there's a bit of this sort of ideological gap. What is the long-term kind of objective? Um, I, I think something which is shorter term is to simply survive, okay? And, uh, you know, the 1790s, you've got these multiple regime changes in France as, as you get constitutional monarchy and then you get a kind of a, of a Jacobin Republic and then a more moderate Republic, which goes through various kind of sub-components. Um, and none of them last for more than a few years. Um, so I think the immediate objective is to actually have a regime which is going to last. Uh, and then you've got this whole problem, what happens if Napoleon dies? You know, he's assassinated. And there, there are quite serious attempts on his life um, at various points. And that is kind of worrying, I think, for, for Napoleon. And it's worrying for the people around him. Um, does it mean that the Bourbons are going to come back? Um, and then everything that the revolution achieved is going to be reversed. Um, so I think the regime is struggling to to legitimize itself. Um, so that's I think it's 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 kind of let's say call it mid term uh, objective is to is to any regime needs that you know it needs to have a buy in from a population. No no regime can sustain itself simply through brute force and power. Um, and yeah, this then becomes an issue when Josephine can't produce an heir. Um, because the, the only realistic way, I think, as far as Napoleon sees it, is to have a dynasty um, and to be able to pass things on to a, a successor who people will then accept. Um, and Josephine can't produce an heir. Then he has this Habsburg marriage in, in 1810. And, um, but it's, it's too late, you know, that the son is born in 1811. Napoleon's getting old. Um, you're going to have a boy emperor, I guess. So then what? So it's... Yeah, it's 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 an issue. Um, but, you know, kind of other objectives, uh, I, I think it is to bring France together. And that's uh, that's maybe a positive quality about this regime. France has been basically sectarianized. You, you've got the, the Republicans, the blue, that's their kind of color and the white, which is the royalist Catholic. Um, and they'd been fighting a civil war in France in, in the 1790s, partly about religion. Um, and um, in a way, what you're dealing with with Napoleon is a centrist kind of regime, um, which I think from today's perspective is actually very interesting because there's, yeah. you know, there's a sense that society today and in much of a Western world, at least, is sort of becoming kind of completely divided between two groups. You know, we call it culture wars, I guess. Um, yeah. And that, um, you know, well, I'm not saying that Napoleon is the answer to that, a kind of like a, a radical kind of centre. But in many ways, that is what he is. And he, he tries to bring in people from both camps. Um, so you've got people like Fouché, his, his infamous minister of police, who's who's a, a former Jacobin. So kind of like, a, you know, very much a man of a revolution. But you've also got people like Talleyrand, who is uh, really a monarchist at heart and who has sort of grown up in the aristocratic world of the old regime, who's uh, Napoleon's foreign minister. So he, he kind of says, you know, I'm, I'll, I kind of for, I'll forget about what you did in the 1790s. I don't really care about that as long as you, you know, you're a talented person, you're willing to to serve me loyally. Uh, and then you you become part of this kind of fairly big Napoleon tent. Um, you're, you're brought in. What an interesting analogy that I've never heard that before, that Napoleon was actually more of a a centrist figure. I always imagined him as some sort of like a radical uh, monarch or a, a radical emperor. 
like one or the other, uh, but not as this like the centrist force that's actually bringing both camps together. So yeah. what the Catholics saw him as a friend to them, and also the revolutionaries saw him as sort of an ally as well. How did that work? This dynamic. It, it, it works with a great deal of management and uh, and kind of problems attached to it. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, he it's partly through what politicians kind of always do which is you you speak with forked tongue <laughs> you you i you say one thing to one kind of group of people and a slightly different thing to another group <laughs> of people and you know when you're in front of a sort of catholic audience or in a, a catholic part of france you will stress your uh, role as a restorer of religion and you'd point to you know one of his greater achievements politically which was to have that piece of the catholic church you know the concordat which he signs with the Pope Pius VII, which restores um, a kind of religious uh, stability to France. Um, if you're in a more Republican area or of a Republican audience, you will stress the fact that you've preserved, you know, the essence of a revolution, uh, equality before the law, um, the whole um, kind of property settlement, you know, where, where church lands and, and to a degree noble lands, but maybe church lands have been seized by the state and then auctioned off, that you're not going to reverse that. And uh, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of property owners in France are, are really worried about that one. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's a problem. And for example, in, in the army, you've got a lot of Republican sentiment, including among the generals, and they really don't like that return to monarchy in 1804, and, and they're not very keen on the Concordat. So uh, that creates tensions. Um, there's a, a degree of um, uh, tension, actually, about the Habsburg match in, in 1810. You know, that seems to be burying the revolution and you know, hey, look, she's the, the great niece of Marie Antoinette. Um, you, you seem to be back to the 1770s and 1780s. Um, so that creates a bit of worry on the Republican side. Um, when it comes to the monarchists, you know, they, 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 they hate the fact that he bumps off the Duc d'Angienne in 1804, you know, this kind of like uh, figure from a French royal family who basically kidnaps and kills. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a balancing act. If you're a centrist, you've always got that problem of of not, I guess, gravitating too much to one end or the other, uh, and maybe becoming dependent just on one faction and alienating the other side. So his communication skills come handy here as well. Yeah, I, I think they do. Uh, mind you, I think, you know, in many ways, he's becoming more of a kind of traditional monarchist figure in many ways towards the end. And it, it, I guess his sense it becomes a bit megalomaniac. Uh, there's some really interesting um, architectural kind of plans for a remodeling of parts of Paris uh, in the later Napoleonic Empire. Um, and you know, you, you start to think this looks a bit like Albert Speer's Berlin. Right, some of it. Germania. You know, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, a little bit. You know, it's a sort of Napoleonic Germania. And um, uh, they don't really come to fruition because there's no time, there's no money. You know, it's the same story. But um, you think, you know, what, what exactly is going on here? <laughs> How much popular support did Napoleon enjoy? It must be fluctuating, of course. Um, but for example... Mm. How did people react when he came back from the first exile? Were they greeting him on the streets or were they pelting him with rotten eggs? 
Yeah, I mean, it depends where you'd you'd travel, and uh, you know, there, there are parts of southern France where they it would have been worse than rotten eggs, I think. Uh, but he kind of avoids those sort of royalist areas on his march back to Paris. So he, he he's he's not stupid. He has got a kind of like a political geography of of France in his head. Um, but other areas, yeah, he's he's welcomed. And um, despite the massive casualties that came from conscription, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that doesn't help, but, you know, people's memories are often a bit short. And um, the Bourbons who, who come back in the in, in the, the, the figure of Louis XVIII um, um, haven't done themselves favours uh, that they've started to marginalise, you know, some Bonapartist figures. And, you know, it's a kind of problem. Uh, Ultimately, the, the the Bourbons have come back in the baggage train of the Allied armies, and that that doesn't look good, I guess, from a French patriotic perspective. Um, and they they never really lived that down uh, that that problem. Um, it's uh, I mean I think Louis XVIII isn't a bad king, as it happens. I mean he's in many ways he's a bit of a centrist as well, unlike his brother. Um, who becomes Charles X, who's a kind of like an extreme ultra royalist, and um, uh, Louis XVIII, I think, realizes that France has changed after 1789, and you 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 have to kind of rule from the middle ground, but it, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to 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 rule France from the middle ground for the next 200 years, in many ways. How did the the heads of these old European royal houses view napoleon it's one of those things where again sources become a little bit of an issue because they they maybe think but don't write it down you know and but i think my, my general sense is that we underestimate the openness of europe's uh elites you know and uh that they're actually more adaptable than we give them credit for um which is why they kind of last so long you know something which is completely static and can't bring in uh, new people incorporate them is a problem um yeah so and, and i think you know we'll, we'll talk maybe about ridley scott's film a bit later but you yes, know we the, the wellington character in that i think just it looks to me like a pantomime toff you know he's he's uh it's it's, it's a bit of a caricature uh maybe wellington is a bit like that mind you but um i think i i don't think you can say he's a representative of the european elites um as a whole um and, you know, why do I say that? Well, I think of the beginning, actually, you said that they view him with contempt. I think a lot of them actually view him as a good thing because he mm. seems to have been somebody who has actually brought order to France and has somehow tamed the revolution, possibly terminated it, but at the very least kind of, uh, you know, brought brought a kind Stabilized. of degree of order to right. France. Yeah. And it's a kind of, a you know, recognisably monarchical regime. Um, and maybe this is somebody who now is going to kind of like calm those revolutionary waters, which have kind of lapped across the frontiers and, and sort of undermined our own states. Um, um, so, yeah, I think that is in many ways positive. And um, uh, the, the Bonaparte start to kind of integrate themselves into uh, into the various kind of royal houses, you know, especially some of the German princely families. Um uh, Jerome marries a, a German princess. That's Napoleon's uh, youngest brother. You know, would be a, would be a good example of that. Um, and you know, we have to remember that you, you can't reduce European geopolitics in this period to princes 
versus revolution or princes versus Napoleon, a lot of these princes have kind of um, problems amongst each other and rivalries and, you know, wars from the past and memories and that. And, you know, if you're if you're a, a sort of minor prince in one of these German states, for example, what better thing than to take out an insurance policy by marrying a daughter to a Bonaparte? OK, you, you probably marry another daughter to maybe uh, into the Russian royal family. And even in you know, Württemberg, for example, is connected to Britain, Napoleonic France and Russia. So it's it's it. It means whoever wins, you're, you're going to have some kind of protector, I guess, at the peace conference. So they, they think cover all bases. In a sense. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got free insurance policies, which kind of cover, you know, various eventualities. So that that to me speaks of pragmatism. Maybe deep down, I think he's a bit inferior. But, um, you know, the thing is that that's going to wash off after a generation. And, um, you know, the Bonapartes now, of course, they're not in power, but they're part of that kind of like network of, of European royals who you will see in sort of Hello magazine or whatever. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of part of that kind of club. Uh, and it, it doesn't take long for them to be part of that kind of club. You mentioned Josephine. We have to talk about her. Mm, uh, mm. I understand we actually have quite a lot of private letters Napoleon wrote to her, less the other way around, because people say that she wasn't as smitten as he was. But there's still a lot of speculation about their relationship. And the story that's usually told is that she was the older, more experienced sort of mm, femme mm. fatale and who wrapped this poor smitten little man around her fingers. But what do we actually really know about their relationship? Yeah, I mean, uh, I always sort of see Napoleon at the beginning as this kind of like the, the awkward man, you know, slightly geeky guy in the in the in the in the party, sort of brooding in the corner and uh and the Ex high society. Existentialist. The, the, the way, social, right. yeah, right, <laughs> and and the, the socializers kind of, you know, maybe sort of laughing at this slightly geeky character who's sort of is, is a bit awkward, and and uh, Josephine is not like that. She's the kind of like very much the inset, uh, the in, soul in of the party. Sort of, yeah, yeah, and I, I think it, it's. I mean, of course, paintings are going to be kind of very flattering, and um, you know, I think she does have a bit of a tooth decay issue, um, uh, which is, <laughs> is maybe partly from her kind of heritage. You know, she's born in the Caribbean, and I, I think you know one of the things she probably would have done is to kind of like suck on kind of sugar, sugar. and and, yeah. and that, and you know, that sort of rots her teeth away. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how you do that if you're making a film. You know, you'd you'd have to get somebody to 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 kind of produce that kind of effect, I suppose. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying is, yeah, I, I think a lot of it is is not necessarily her beauty, but her charm. And you know, one one maybe thinks of what has been written about Cleopatra. You know, it's it's not necessarily that that it's a physical beauty which men find attractive but that kind of charm um and uh again it's a kind of form of charisma isn't it something which is 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 difficult exactly to define but you you kind of know it when you see it sort of thing um yeah i mean he needs probably her more than she needs him initially um uh but she eases him into a career which very rapidly takes off so i think that sort of power dynamic between the the couple obviously changes um yeah i mean it's it's pretty clear that she is unfaithful to him but mind you he's not completely faithful to her 
but I, I guess with social attitudes of a time was that it's it's probably okay for the man to be unfaithful more than for the the, the, the woman to right. be unfaithful. Um, I, I think she's a traumatized individual. Um, you know, I, I would say post-traumatic stress disorder. After all, she's been in effect on death row. She's seen her husband guillotine. She's barely during the revolution. Right. During the revolution, and I think that to an extent comes across in the the film in Ridley Scott, and that's um, that that's one of the the better parts of it. I think it it shows where she is coming from. Um, and you've got this group of of, of people. Jo- Josephine is amongst them, who can say we've survived. You know, we, we're going to live life to the full now uh, because there, there's no point really holding back because, you know, do it while you can kind of attitude, um, which you get in that sort of directory, that that regime which where she's a leading social figure. Uh, but uh, it's a regime which also has a reputation for being uh, a little bit decadent and being perhaps promiscuous and too um, too open, I guess, when it comes to kind of sexual politics. and. Um, this is where I think Adam Zamoyski's point about um, Napoleon being a bit of a prude, you know, the, the, the Napoleonic regime to an extent tries to clamp down a little bit on some of that. Um, it's, you know, for another older historical analogy, you think of Augustan Rome. Emperor Augustus. Augustus. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. He, he wants, he, he doesn't want this regime to look kind of um, promiscuous, scandal. There, there are ones, but they're kind of, he tries to minimize it or, you know, hush it up or whatever. You know, we know what happens to regimes, I guess, which get that kind of stigma of of being kind of both corrupt financially, but also morally. It it, it can be politically very damaging. And, you know, history is littered with examples of regimes which to an extent collapse because of public perceptions like that. How much power did Josephine wield as the empress, if any? Uh, she she, do, she does have a degree of power. And, um, you know, we... We think of Napoleonic France as being this uh, incredibly modern bureaucratic state, you know, where where appointments to senior positions is just about, um, you know, how how good you are professionally. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, she she does wield a degree of influence when it comes to appointments, and um, you, you might talk about a sort of Bohanay clan. Um, so it, it becomes a little bit factionalized, um, elite kind of court politics in Napoleonic France. And, and so, you know, if you're a, a prefect and you've got a kind of link with, um, with the empress or with her ladies in waiting or something like that, you know, that, that gives you a little bit of a kind of, uh, an advantage, all other things being equal. Uh, but she's not going to have a voice in kind of, you know, grand strategy. Do, do we march on Austria or do we attack, <laughs> you know, Russia at this point or anything like that? How do we right, defeat right. Britain? Uh, she, she's not going to get a voice there. <clears throat> you know, I think something one has to remember is that um, in the late 18th century, you start to get a very negative view emerging in France and maybe further afield about women being involved in politics. And um, a lot of this is, uh, is, is what Marie Antoinette becomes a victim of, that, that real sentiment that she is sort of manipulating things behind the scenes, manipulating her husband, Louis XVI, who is a weak ruler and allows himself to be dominated by his wife. And this becomes a, a kind of trope. Uh, uh, it produces a lot of pamphlets um, about you know why you shouldn't have women in politics. And uh, you, you get these sort of interesting publications you might say bizarre misogynist you know saying you know 
uh, a history of over you know women in in in, in political leadership positions since Messalina of ancient Rome, and then they kind of have all these horrible women like Catherine de Medici and that, and you know poisoners and 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 manipulative kind of figures. So Napoleon again is a He's a political animal, so I think he knows what it would do to his regime. To you know, if it's if it's clear that he's being bossed around by his wife on policy issues, uh, that that would be a kind of catastrophic image to present in this period. Um, but also, he's not, I guess, you know, psychologically, he's not the kind of type of person that's going to be bossed around by anyone. So um, certainly not when it comes to high politics. How did you take the fact that Napoleon had to remarry? and that she lost her status as the empress. Yeah, I mean, I, I, she doesn't take it very well, as you you, you can guess. Uh, and so there's this, this terrible scene where they go through the divorce, and uh, I think she faints at one point, and it's it's really a, a very unpleasant, painful kind of process. Um, I mean, beyond the actual divorce itself which is the blow, um, she does, you know, she, she, she's not thrown out onto the street or anything. She gets a, you know, a, a very big pension and a palace, probably more than one palace. Uh, and, you know, she retains her title and you, you almost get a sense it's, it's going to be more of a problem for the new empress in that you've got this kind of ex-empress or still empress kind of like lurking there on the outskirts of Paris, um, <laughs> who Napoleon, you know, still has a, a bond with. Um, how How is that going to kind of work? You know, um, it's it, it's a little bit awkward. It's I don't know if it's unprecedented, but, um, you know, history is so long and diverse, you, you tend to get precedents for anything. But um, I'm not sure if there is one for that. You know, how, how do you manage that? Uh, I mean, Henry VIII, I guess you, well, I suppose he, well, <laughs> no, that isn't really a precedent, is it? Maybe with Catherine of Aragon it is. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, she's she's just shunted into the background in a very brutal way. Napoleon doesn't behave that way to Josephine. Um, you know, there, there, there is that bond, I think, of, of respect and affection, which which continues. Okay. After Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, would you say that France was better or worse off than it was before him? I mean, are you asking, would it have been better had Napoleon won Waterloo and you'd have had a Bonapartist regime continuing all the way through? Or... No, the state of France before Napoleon's ascension to power and the state yeah. of France after he was defeated with all the casualties and all the reforms. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does yeah. it balance out? I mean, I think you can look at that uh, at a kind of institutional level um, uh, and then at a sort of like a political level. Institutional level, uh, it's good. Uh, okay, France is, is fit for purpose to, to face the rest of the 19th century and even beyond, which is, you know, you, you can see that they don't really make massive institutional reforms. The, the departmental system, the way that France is governed and policed and taxed, and the Bank of France and the sort of education system, the lycée, the baccalaureate. The state apparatus. Uh, the state apparatus, yeah. So that's that's all great. And the, the Bourbons, they keep it. And then the, the Orleanists, they keep it. And then the Second Empire and to an extent, the Third Republic. So it kind of lasts all the way through. And a lot of it is still there today, you know. Um, I think politically, it's a problem. Um, and um, I think any regime after Napoleon in France has got a problem, partly of living up to that kind of aura of glory, 
of 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 this uh, of, of France being you know this this power which is is feared and is, is, is essentially the top power in Europe you know if not globally and um, every regime after 1815 struggles with that to to live up to those kind of exaggerated I would say expectations um, exaggerated partly because things are going against France at a fairly profound level you know but demographically France is 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 kind of being um, is out being outperformed by pretty much everyone else in the 19th century. So it's just it's sort of economic demographic kind of weight is in decline. So, you know, the trouble is that French regimes after 1815 often have a sort of overambitious kind of foreign policy and, and no more than with Napoleon III, Napoleon's nephew. Um, you know, that, that has an additional problem in that he's called Napoleon. So that gets him elected because he's, he's got name recognition. But it also is a problem because people expect him to behave like a Napoleon um, and, and a Napoleon doesn't just sort of have a kind of become like a giant Switzerland. OK, you know, having a very defensive kind of Pacific foreign policy. So France overextends itself at various points and that leads to sort of catastrophic setbacks and defeats um, in, in the 19th century. So, yeah, politically, really problematic, the legacy. Uh, but I wouldn't even say it's Napoleon's fault. I mean, it's 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 there after 1789, I guess. Um, administratively, um, the the kind of the operating system of a French state, yeah, that that's really France is a good place after 1815. Because I've heard a lot of times uh, being said that Napoleon's ultimate defeat kind of sets up the stage for Britain to take over and become this huge power uh, empire where the sun never mm. sets yeah i mean it, it does kind of clear things out of the way for britain uh yeah. you know and you get that sort of pax britannica in the in the 19th century sort of 1815 to to i guess 1914 um more or less um i, I suppose what i would say there is that britain is kind of that, that seems to be british trajectory anyway um and uh Britain does very well in the 18th century. You, know, you got the, the Seven Years' War, where it gets North America and you know, the Indian subcontinent. And then people think, oh, it loses the 13 colonies. You know, Britain is going to be a, a kind of minor power. And, uh, you know, the Austrian Emperor Joseph II basically writes Britain off in the early 1780s because of the loss of America. Um, but it, it proves actually not to be a fundamental loss um, in many ways. It isn't. And Britain has got kind of a lot of things going for it, the structure of its own state and its tax raising capacity, um, its economic kind of strength, which is based partly, of course, on the slave trade, partly on, you know, industrial development, technological development. So um, I'm wondering if Napoleon hadn't happened, um, you know, I don't see that trajectory actually having changed very much. And I just don't see how Napoleon could have defeated Britain. Uh, I think it's it's it started to move into this kind of a, a slightly different plane. You know, we would call maybe industrial, whereas France is still sort of pre-industrial. Um, so it, it would be like trying to defeat the United States in the mid 20th century in a way. I, I just don't see how it conceivably could have really been done. A lot of historians um, lay this charge that Napoleon's expansionist foreign policy led to the deaths of up to 6 million people. I heard one figure, uh, they say, mm. uh, in Europe, which admittedly is not a good look. Would you think that 
Europeans would be, I mean, European states would be fighting even without Napoleon, or is this mm. legitimate criticism? <laughs> yeah, I think they would be. And I mean, the, the evidence is, uh, you know, that they'd been fighting all the way up to Napoleon. Um, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. And, you know, and, and these these great kind of powers, you know, Europe is a jungle in the 18th century and probably other periods as well. And uh, the French Revolution, it, you shouldn't think, okay, peace, harmony, French Revolution happens, then war. Uh, the French Revolution happens, you know, at a time when there's a war between Russia and the Austrians versus the Ottomans with the Swedes coming in. So, I mean, uh, and that's not necessarily unusual. Uh, Poland gets partitioned out of uh, existence by by these old regime powers. And, uh, you know, violence is used in these kind of processes. Um, so, uh, yeah, let, let's put Napoleon into that kind of context. I think where you the case for the prosecution against Napoleon would be that yeah his his wars are then particularly bloody. Um, part of that is because a French state before Napoleon starts to you know invent a form of conscription, which means you can produce much bigger armies, and then everyone else has to respond. So even there, without Napoleon, you'd have had bigger European armies fighting bloodier battles. Um, so even if he's personally not around. To make any decisions that would have been the case um but yeah i think he he maxes out that kind of um that that kind of uh losing Fighting lots of soldiers style. yeah right right and, and and i think europe as a whole is is kind of shocked and war weary after 1815 and i think what what is interesting is that you don't really get a major european war for a very long time after 1815 so 1815 ends a sequence which doesn't start in 1792 but starts way earlier i don't know how far back you need to go but then you get this period where um if you like european aggressive impulses are sort of directed outwards you know to places like algeria i guess uh, after 1830 and you know to to overseas um and then you get yeah you get the crimean war but that's a bit on the periphery and it's not it's not a global not really a global conflict. I mean, there's some fighting in the Pacific even there, but it's not massive, okay, compared to, to the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and then you get these short wars in the 1860s about Germany, Italian unification, 1870, 71. The real next massive war involving everyone, basically, um, who's important is 1914 to 1918. So you get a century of relative peace in Europe. And that's, that is unusual. I wanted to ask you this before we start discussing the movie. Would you agree that in a way Napoleon will always remain a bit of an uh, open vessel in the sense that our evaluation of him also depends on our vantage point? For example, in Britain, quite understandably, he's always been a bit of a boogeyman and mm. comparisons to Hitler sometimes can still be heard. On the other hand, I come uh, from a place where Napoleon is remembered as, well, pretty much one of the good lads. Like I'm originally Slovenian and in Ljubljana, mm. our capital city, we have, I believe the only monument to Napoleon outside of France or one of the only ones. And it wasn't put there by him or the French, but by us uh, more than a hundred years after his death. It's, it's actually really close to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's quite awesome. It's an obelisk. Uh, now during his campaigns, Napoleon, of course, tore these lands from Austria and called them Illyrian provinces. But what mm -hmm. his rule was really kind of re remembered for was a whole set of liberating new rights for the majority of the populace, liberating for, for, for the times, of course. 
and as well as the fact that for the first time Slovenian language became an official language in Slovenian lands, which was a big deal. Anyway, once these reforms were, were implemented, the Austrians couldn't just roll them back once they took over again. So they had a profound and, and lasting effect in the collective memory. So in our high school history class, we probably hear something else about Napoleon than what an English teenager would hear mm. in theirs. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I kind of straddle both camps so that, you know, part of my family background is British. So I guess they would have probably hated Napoleon going back to that period. And uh, I don't know if they fought against him or not, but some of them must have done, I guess. And But part of my background is is from the Rhineland. That's a Western part of Germany where, uh, again, Napoleon was seen much more positively and rather like in Slovenia, a lot of those institutions like the civil code, you know, that they're, they're admired and respected and uh, they don't like the Prussians trying to come in and, and sort of change that. Um, so I, I kind of see both sides of that argument. Um, I mean, I think on the, on the British side, it's sad to say, I think um, that there's a great deal of neglect and that's, that's the, uh, that's an even bigger insult, if you will. If it's, it's not only not ridiculed or, or criticized or condemned, but you're kind of ignored. And um, so it's not uh, a huge part, I think, of, of the curriculum. You know, I don't get the sense that by, by, by children, daughters there in that kind of age going from school system, I, they, they haven't really had much exposure to Napoleon. Um so he's kind of ignored. Um, yeah, I mean, there were people in Britain at the time that sort of admire Napoleon. You know, he's this great, great kind of romantic figure. And uh, I, I think what helps Napoleon in that period is that, you know, a lot of the other governments, especially after 1815, become very reactionary and repressive. Uh, and that happens in Britain as well. And then Napoleon is seen as somebody who's a disruptor. Um, but yeah, I mean, every generation... I guess, looks at Napoleon in a slightly different way. And, um, you know, now with things like Black Lives Matter, debates about slavery, Napoleon doesn't look quite as good. You know, right. he, he, he does reintroduce. Affair. Yeah, that and, you know, reintroduction of slavery or partial reintroduction. So there's a, there's a lot of debate there about Napoleon and his sort of interaction with the world outside of Europe. Is he is he a kind of like a European imperialist and uh, is he a a racist, those kind of questions. Um, is he, you know, what about women, other minority groups? And it's a bit of a mixed bag, you know, when it comes to uh, Jews, for example. Yeah, I mean, he opens up ghettos uh, in places like Rome, you know, and um, it does seem to be a, a tolerant regime when it comes to religion. Um, when it comes to things like homosexuality, it's sort of, it's, it's relatively tolerant. So, these are the kind of questions which are being asked by by students now that's on the agenda and and you didn't really have very much reflection about these things when it came to napoleon in the past when there were other debates you know uh, going on and i don't know in 10 20 years time where the debates will be then uh and and i think in many ways the the ambiguities and complexities of the napoleonic regime which reflect the ambiguities and complexities of a world which is transitioning from the early modern, from a, a kind of very hierarchical structure about bloodlines and, and uh, established religions to the world we are kind of used to today. It, it's a very ca- complex transition. And um, 
you know, we're still debating, I think, those complexities, some of them, you know, what are the hierarchies? What are appropriate hierarchies? Should there be any hierarchies? Um, how do we manage power imbalances? All of that kind of stuff, you know. Um, well, if you want a lesson on, on, on how that works and comes into being in our modern period, well, look at the Napoleonic period. Last but not least, time is pressing, so we have to talk about Ridley Scott's film, which already managed to ruffle some feathers, <laughs> particularly in France, where the critics have labeled the film as very pro-British and very anti-French. On top of this, the movie has been panned for its many historical inaccuracies. You've seen the film. What did you think of it? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I really didn't like it. And I, I wished I'd have been next door watching kind of Hunger Games 4, I think, which was... Wow. <laughs> where, where the, okay, you came out where, guns where, blazing. Where, yeah, my, my daughter was watching that with her friend. I thought, okay, you know. <laughs> um, I didn't like it. Um, I didn't think actually the British came across that positively. I mean, they came across as, as I mentioned, as like pantomime tough kind of figures. I, I thought profoundly unsympathetic in a way. And um, I, I didn't like it, I think, for a couple of reasons. And, and one actually is, is less to do about historical inaccuracy or not. But it was um, I, I just thought it was a little bit too ambitious in trying to cover 30 years of his life. So I, I, I thought technically um that was wasn't great uh in that you just had these kind of like fragments these episodes um going from 1793 to napoleon's death in 1821 and i i think uh i would have liked to have seen a film which was maybe a little bit more focused and allowed the characters to develop more so that's almost looking at the film as a non-napoleonic specialist as as uh, as as somebody that's actually i, I quite like kind of uh, bi historical you know, film biographies yeah i do yeah. like them um uh I, I should admit i didn't like um gladiator very much which was ridley scott as well but okay i love uh, that movie uh, full disclosure <laughs> but i really do like ridley scott's the duelist which is, yeah. is a lesser yeah. well-known film uh 19th which is i think his first major film which if you want something which captures the kind of essence of the Napoleonic period, you know, I'd, I'd recommend to everyone to watch The Duelist. It's based on a true story as well, which is It's is these great. two duelists that meet every 10 years, right? Yeah, or every, every few years. Again, yeah. Every few years or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, these these kind of obsessive, you know, yep. when it comes to the cult of honor, which I think infuses the Napoleonic army. So Ridley Scott knows about the period. He can do the period. But um, yeah, so I didn't like the way the film was structured. And then I just think it doesn't get the feel right of the period. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm not necessarily a stickler for historical accuracy, because I think there's something called artistic license. And you can sometimes take liberties um, with facts, but then you, you, you do speak to a wider or bigger truth. So you, 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 you can do that. But um, you know why? Why have you know French artillery shell the pyramids? Because um, it's, it's a good stupid. shot. It, lo it it's looks a good amazing. Shot, but why do that? You know, because there's so many amazing things you could have done, drawing on what actually happens in the Napoleonic period, about doing things like that. Um, I thought those kind of sex scenes with Josephine a bit bizarre. Um, I don't. That didn't seem to ring true to me. And you know this. Um, under a dining room table of, you know, kind of servants present? I don't think so. You know, th those things just didn't feel kind of authentic <laughs> to me and were, were a bit mildly off-putting. Um, 
uh, I had a bit of a problem. I mean, I, I like um, Joaquin Phoenix a lot. Uh, I think he's a good actor. Um, but he did seem to me a bit, well, it's not only old for the role. And of course, remember, you know, Josephine is, is about six years older than Napoleon. Whereas when you look at the actors in the film, it's it's more than reversed. So is there a bit of a casting issue there? And Napoleon never seems to age. I mean, it's just his kind of like uniform and hat changes a bit, you know, and um, uh, maybe even worse, he doesn't seem to develop much as a character. I would have liked to have seen more of that. Um, I, I wouldn't join the French in saying, oh, it's just kind of like, you know, pro-British, because I, I think it's in many ways, it's a, just a, a technically a, a bit of a disappointing film, I thought. And mm. um, yeah, I'm sure they see it as just like kind of Gilray and Cruikshank, another Anglo-Saxon kind of, um, you know, whacking the French uh, kind of, you know, part of that genre, which I don't think is what Ridley Scott, I don't think the French, do they appear that bad? I didn't get, I mean, I, I think, think Napoleon appears bad, but yeah. Yeah. Well, this is how Ridley Scott responded to the criticisms about historical accuracy. I do apologize for the profanity, but these are my friend Ridley's <laughs> words, not mine. He said the following, when I have issues with historians, I ask, excuse me, mate, were you there? No? Well, shut the fuck up mm. then. Mm. I mean, that, that is quite an amusing response. Yeah. Not Not very articulated, but we can't deny that the man's passion is there for the film, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's that's good. And as I say, I, I respect uh, his knowledge of that period in the field because I've seen The Duelist, which, as I say, is 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 up there with films like Danton, you know, the, the, the early 1980s, which I think really captures the sort of terror. Um, so he can do it. But I'm, I'm not sure. Well, you know, he says that historians weren't there. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there during those kind of scenes with, with Napoleon and, and Josephine getting intimate. <laughs> um, uh, and, and of course, yeah, I mean, historians weren't there, but they do read people at were. Um, right. And, um, you know, okay. Yeah, man, it's not a serious very, argument. It's not serious. And as I say, I mean, I'm not particularly worried if, uh, you know, the coronation was, was, it was longer than a few minutes, which is how it's portrayed as. But, you know, the idea that Napoleon kind of crowns himself and he, he does say not during the ceremony, but in another context, he picked the crown out of a gutter. I think that was fair. You know, it's good artistic license. It's visually, it, but it, it actually gets the essence right, that, that, that scene. And um, what about the battle scenes? What did you think of those? Um, kind of okay, but you know, again, you know, one one measures it with other films, and um, a film I really like is Waterloo, nineteen seventy, um, and I've forgotten the director's name. I think Ukrainian director. It's, it, it was it, it, it's, uh, Rod Steiger plays uh, Napoleon in that, and uh, Christopher Plummer is is Wellington. Basically, the whole film or most of the film is devoted to the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, and that is filmed using, I think, a large, um, you know, a, a large number of extras are actually provided by the Soviet army, believe it or not, including authentic cavalry units. And those battle scenes are absolutely amazing. You know, they've got that kind of scale, that grandeur, but they also somehow haven't got that um, AI generated kind of look about them. Now, I don't know to what extent that was used in in, in, in Ridley Scott. So, yeah, um, uh, kind of okay, but uh, there there are a lot of them, and yeah, there there are inaccuracies in some of those too. Um, I think Waterloo is, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of actually visiting the battlefield um, earlier in the year, and um, 
Wellington is very good at using the reverse slope. So he kind of like concentrates most of his army behind a slope so you can't see it. You know, that wasn't done in the in the film. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you make of that of what you will. What about the ice lake scene? That was not a real thing, was it? It wasn't, but I think something like that happens either at Elau or Friedland, which is 1807. So, okay. um, so there is where, some authenticity where to that. You, you do get some Napoleonic battles where people kind of fall into freezing water and the, mm. the, the French retreat at Beretzina is is like that. So fair enough. I would say that's within the parameters of artistic license. And I mean, what is good is it it, it shows the real horrors of war, you know, and uh, it's uh, it shows you the heroism, but also the bloodshed. And I think that's that is, for me, a more interesting balance to kind of strike because, yeah, we live in an age which is um, it has a, a very low kind of tolerance threshold for that kind of thing. But on the other hand, at the time, you did have this kind of cult of glory and heroism. And I think you have to kind of recognize that. Um, and, and I think the film brings that out. And yeah, the uniforms are spectacular and the, the cavalry. Um, you know, what I don't like about some of the older films is uh, I'm sure a lot of horses die in making some of those early, you know, crippled. And uh, I'm sure that these days that that kind of authenticity isn't allowed, you know, ethically wouldn't be approved. And thank God for that. One of the main problems I had with the film was that Joaquin Phoenix's choice to portray him as this kind of almost a boring little average Joe or something who's devoid of any charisma and who just happens to be good at fighting. And I love Joaquin Phoenix. Usually he's mm, one of my mm. favorite actors. So that was uh, mm. a, a choice that he made, an artistic choice. They they made with the director probably. Mm, but I have mm. trouble believing that if Napoleon was this sort of almost like a drab apparatchik or something, hundreds of thousands would follow him to the ends of the earth, literally. Like, yeah. uh, I didn't seem, it didn't seem credible. Yeah, that 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 was that that I, I thought as well. You know, why would people in large numbers follow him, as you say, to the ends of the, the earth and and sacrifice themselves, you know, willingly? And you get this. You know, there's a degree of memoir literature um, and letters and correspondence that survives from the Napoleonic army, and you, you get these kind of like comments. You know, we loved our marshals, but the emperor we worshipped as a god. And those kind of like things and. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't worship that Napoleon which we, we, we were exposed to over the last few days. As you say, he's a bit, he's a bit weird in in certain ways, and um, not in a positive sense. Um, I, I think, yeah, if if I were Napoleon, I, I would, I would not like that film myself because it's. Um, it, everyone is a balance, I guess, of of negative and positive kind of characteristics are seen by by outsiders and i think there was a little bit too much on the on the negative and maybe the positive maybe not enough there so hmm. maybe i'd be a little bit with a french on that part yeah of their criticism in the film he's quite humorless and i wanted to ask you this before did napoleon have a sense of humor I think you could do sarcasm if you if you call that it's the lowest form of I humor, do, yeah. isn't it? They say, okay, yeah. it is a form of humor. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I think that you know, calling Talleyrand a pile of shit and silk stockings is is pretty is pretty cool because <laughs> I think it does to an extent sum him up. You know, that kind of elegance, but inside he he can be a bit shitty and a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, um, That's pretty awesome yeah. to be honest. We we can take that box. Normally, Talleyrand was was quite good at, at kind of those kind of insults as well. He's bon mot, uh, but, but mm. then he, he got he got outgunned on that particular occasion. 
Last question. Did Napoleon suffer from the Napoleon complex? <laughs> um, uh, go on, we enter that kind of psycho history type of thing. And he was bullied <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as a cadet and made fun of because he was short and had a funny, you know. Was he really short? You said that he was a little bit below average height. Yeah. But I thought I mean, that we're, this we're... has been debunked over and over again. So I yeah, wanted I, to ask you. I think, you. and I, I don't know, I'm sure we'll get responses. I think he was 5'7, but, um, you know, and you look at world leaders today in relative terms. Um, well, people have actually commented on Macron, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't stand out i don't think as as being um you know somebody who people would kind of like stare at uh, i mean i think part of this is is british propaganda at the time you know gilray and, and crookshank it's, it's a great period that, that's napoleon's great misfortune i guess to coincide with his this great tradition of British cartoonism. Uh, and they portray him as kind of like midget, you know, this mosquito-sized kind of object, uh, you know, kind of poking John Bull, who's, you know, this, this huge character. And um, so I think that, that's part of it. Um, so, um, yeah, there, there might be something going on there that he's, he's just kind of had to always kind of fight his way through his sort of siblings and his older brother and assert himself. And, uh, but, you know, how do we know it's this nature nurture kind of debate, isn't it? I mean, mm. I don't know if it's been proven one way or the, the other, I suppose that the tragedy from the, the Napoleon's point of view is that those were the things which got him to the top. Yeah, you, you could have made it to the top without having those kind of qualities, but they're also the things which get him from the top back down to the bottom. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, he, he just can't be integrated into some kind of um, stable order, which is uh, polycentric, you know, a, a kind of what Europe is, um, you know, a variety of great powers and no one is ever going to dominate everyone else for a long time. So that that's a that's that makes him a kind of tragic figure, I guess. Somebody who's bound to to fall at the end. That maybe could have been brought out a little bit more, actually. That 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 sort of tragedy. <laughs> what a great way to wrap up the conversation, Michael. Thank you. Where can people follow your work? Do you have any social media? I'm a bit neglectful of that. <laughs> okay. So I mean, the best thing is just to look me up on King's College London webpage and, um, and uh, yeah, and LinkedIn. I'm afraid it's those sort of more boring academic kind of uh, uh, areas. But yeah, um, yeah, if you type me in, I guess, Michael Rowe on, on YouTube, uh, I've done a few kind of casts. Uh, I did a recording with the, the BBC in our time with Melvin Bragg, which discusses the... Um, the invasion of Russia, you know, that kind of climactic episode, um, along with a couple of other historians. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's yeah, unfortunately, we couldn't talk about that. But maybe next time, if you're up to it, uh, I would be super grateful. Um, Great. If we can well, do this again. You're such a wealth of knowledge. It's such a privilege to have this conversation. It was absolutely splendid. Thank you so much. Well, Zaza, thanks for those kind words and for putting this together. Hey, thank you for listening. First and foremost, a massive, massive thank you to my producers, Lorenzo, Jurechuk, Carmen, Veronica, Mila, and Taichi. You legends rock. Without you, this podcast would not have been possible at all. Thank you so much. For the rest of you, if you enjoyed listening to the episode, please follow and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And of course, if you'd like to become a patron as well, go to Patreon type smart cookies in there um, and become one. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.